worth mentioning. In actual fact, it should be four. Normally we do four, but I've snuck a little one in. So there we go. Okay, first up is the Wasp Street Teams. Now, I don't know whether you've come across this before. Um, but if you haven't encountered WASP before, they are the web standards organization that kind of promote web standards um, and best practice and that kind of stuff. And they've been doing a lot of work with uh, browser uh, manufacturers and, and people like that and, and kind of pushing at conferences and all of that kind of stuff. But they're now... Aren't they, sorry, Paul. Yeah, go aren't, for it. Don't they specifically um, focus on accessibility? No, no, no. Or am I getting... You are getting confused as normal. No, they do, they do more than just accessibility. Um, yeah, so they've been uh, working for a long time on promoting standards and uh, with, a, with a lot of success, it has to be said. But um, they've kind of now encountering the long tail, if that makes sense. So, you know, they're kind of, they've got the, the um, bulk of web designers on board and kind of convinced a lot of people that web standards is the way to go and they've done a lot of work with the browsers um, which have improved no end but now they're kind of left with this long tail of designers the people that are not the fast adopters that are much slower and they're looking for ways to kind of bring these people on board and the way that they've decided to do that is that there's no point of doing it at conferences because these kind of designers and developers don't attend conferences but they're talking about setting up local kind of groups to promote web standards within their local area and this is um, the project called street teams that I mentioned and so um, if you're interested in promoting web standards in your kind of local community um, and local area then check out streetteams.webstandards.org I think it's a really good idea they're kind of not quite there they've kind of announced it but haven't really kind of provided too much details about how it's going to work which is a little bit frustrating um, but keep an it's eye like, on like a, like a web, I was going to say like a web 2.0 company then oh yes totally <laughs> like a web 2.0 company um, so as a result it's like well I don't really know what we're doing but keep an eye on streetteams.webstandards.org uh, and hopefully things will improve uh, before too long and there'll be more details on that Next story is uh, a bit of a bizarre one that's come up following South by Southwest. The Brit Pack. Now, the Brit Pack, what are the Brit Pack? The Brit Pack are a group of British web designers that are kind of, really, it's a group of friends um, that have known each other for a while and talk on uh, line and they've got a mailing list and they chat with one another. And. Um, They've been around for a while and they've, they've built quite a reputation for themselves. It's kind of it, the group of friends are, are figures that you kind of all know. People like Andy Budd, Jeremy Keith, um, Patrick Lork, Andy Clark. The list goes on and on. And um, they've come under attack from, uh, at South by Southwest for being elitist. And that this is a kind of elitist little club uh, of people that have kind of got together um, and, you know, they kind of exclude other people and that, you know, that kind of talk, which just strikes me as somewhat peculiar, but yet is a common accusation that seems to crop up after a lot of conferences, not specifically with um, the Brit Pack. They haven't come in for it before, but just about speakers or successful people within the web design industry that, you know, they don't speak to the masses and they kind of keep themselves to themselves. And in a lot of cases, this is often born out of jealousy. Um, but sometimes I think it's made worse by speakers at conferences that tend to hang out in the VIP room and don't kind of you know, mingle with us mere mortals that kind of attend conferences. However, in my personal opinion, you know, the Brit Pack is more than welcome to have their own friendship groups. And I don't think, you know, it's within anybody's right to say that they shouldn't kind of be friends. It's just a bizarre thing that's come across. Um, and Marcus, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you, uh, yeah, what do you think about this? I don't really know what to say about it, really. It's a weird one. Um, uh, the, only, the only time I would say that there was anything it's even worth bothering to talk about would be if um, people are setting themselves up to be famous. Yeah. Uh, which, and in this case, that's not the case. I mean, you know, uh, 
a good example would be this podcast. I mean, we, we have recognised that it's an excellent way of promoting Headscape and marketing Headscape, but that's not the reason why you first plugged your mic in. You plugged it in because you were curious about making podcasts and, and you know, what is this new medium? Um, and the same thing applies to everyone who, who's... You, you can't be passionate and go out and, and speak on, in conference after conference after conference if the only reason you want to do it is to be famous. So it's like old rubbish in my view. But, and but it's just jealousy. But if people even do want to be famous, um, you know, and they want to kind of increase their profile, so what? Do you know what I mean? At the well, end of the day, we're in a we're in a commercial market. We're trying to to run a business here. We're trying to kind of you know attract work and. You know, people like um, Andy Budd and Jeremy Keith, a lot of what they do is training, um, you know, and they write books. They want to sell those books. Is that really wrong that they promote themselves? No, no, not at all. I'm saying if, if that is your first reason for doing it, then then you are in more of a position to, uh, I don't know, to be criticized or to be, um, you know, to, to be dissected in, what, in why you're doing it. And But still, you know, the bottom line is you can do what you like. It's a free it's a free country, so is America, supposedly. Well, supposedly applies to the UK as well. Okay, that's cool. Um, as long as we're being universally sarcastic. And rude, <laughs> I'm being, exactly. So, I don't know, it's, it's gossip, tittle-tattle. Yes, and we've just not, given not it credibility by covering... We've just given it credibility yeah. by covering it in the show, haven't we? Damn. And this is such a high our podcast, I don't really think that we should be discussing such things. Yes, because, you know, we are not <laughs> tabloid journalism here. So with that, let's move on. Oh, God, the hypocrisy of it all. Okay, <laughs> next uh, next news story up is, um, yeah, an interesting post by Robert Nyman about semantic URLs. Where will it ever end? Not only have we got to have semantic code, we also now have to have semantic URLs. And basically, this is the principle, instead of having, I don't know, news.php, question mark, you know, various mm. parameters strung on the end, that instead you have, you know, news.php forward slash, oh, sorry, news um, forward slash, you know, name of article. <coughs> That's it, a very, very, uh, um, yes, interesting URL you just described. Yes, an impossible URL. <laughs> Lots um, of so, I mean, it's, it's actually a really good article by Robert Nyman, and it, uh, it's kind of definitely worth reading um, if your content management system or whatever you're doing doesn't work with that approach, then it, it, it's worth checking out. I mean, it's something that we, we struggled with for a while with our own content management system and eventually addressed it. And I'm glad we did, really, because... Um, it has loads of benefits. For a start, it's got usability benefits that people can actually, in theory, um, you know, just navigate via the address bar by kind of working out what different sections are. I mean, you see that in particular on things like Delicious, um, where basically if you know somebody's username, then you know the URL um, to get to their bookmarks. Mm. And you can put tags straight in and stuff like that. So it's got usability benefits. It's obviously got search engine optimization benefits. Um, but there are also benefits from a coding perspective. And, and Robert lays these out really well in his article. So um, I'll put a link to, uh, to that in the show notes and, and go along and check that out because it's a good one. Um, next up is, oh, this is interesting, Marcus. I don't know whether you actually had um, a look at this uh, before the show. But there's a, a, a recent article on the SitePoint website called Flip a Website, which is a bit of a bizarre title, and I'm not really quite sure why it's called that. Did you actually look at this one, Marcus? No, I didn't get the chance. Uh, it's a brilliant article, and I really think um, you ought to read it. Um, and in fact, I think it's something that we might be interested in as Headscape. So the my, my laptop's broken, remember? Oh, yes. It you... says crying. Yeah, oh, bless. Oh. I wasted half a day yesterday and probably more today, but there we go. Well, that's what <laughs> happens if you run a Windows PC. I can't believe I just <laughs> said that out loud. It was really it's funny. Hardware, not software. Yesterday I felt smug for the first time because you were having problems on your PC. And then Chris went and got a virus on his. And I, I got to have that, that Mac smugness moment. But anyway... I'm sure it won't last. In fact, it hasn't lasted already. So, um, yeah, no, no, this is really interesting. Flipper website. So it's the principle, right, 
in house in the housing market, especially in the UK, I don't know whether it's like it's much abroad, but people buy up houses specifically to do them up and then sell them on for a profit. Okay, great idea. So um, Peter Davis has basically suggested, well, why don't you um, do the same thing but with websites? Interesting concept. So the idea is that basically um, you you identify a um, property that you're interested in purchasing, so a website that you're interested in pur purchasing. Um, you evaluate whether it could, you know, there's stuff you could do with it. You ne negotiate with the website owner, complete a sale. And apparently, you know, you don't need to be spending a lot of money buying these websites, you know, if you pick your kind of target right. And then you kind of add value to that um, website and you kind of do it up a bit and, you know, maybe grow it a little bit. And then you find a buyer and sell it on. I thought it was a really interesting idea. Yeah, I suppose I'd need to see some examples because houses obviously are solid things that have an obvious value. So um, a, a, a better way, a better comparison would be a bricks and mortar business and selling that business, i.e. not the, the bricks and mortar themselves. And that's uh, probably a more, uh, it's a better comparison and how easy that is to do. I've got no experience of selling bricks and mortar businesses like a shop, for example. Yeah. I can just see it working with, say, a community website where um, maybe the community is atrophying a little bit or people, mm. ha you know, haven't worked out um, perhaps how to kind of, um, you know, generate income off of it or whatever else. And that, you know, if somebody has got the kind of, um, you know, the ideas of how to monetize it, then then potentially they could turn it into something cool. I just thought it was an interesting idea. It's certainly an interesting article and definitely worth reading. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's kind of an alternative, you know, I, I guess, uh, you know, let's be honest, as Headscape, we're kind of looking around and going, okay, what other revenue streams can we generate beyond this, the simple agency model? Because the agency model... Uh, you know, requires constant pressure on you to to bring in more sales and that kind of thing. You know, so one mm. option is to 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 build products, which seems to be the in thing at the moment. But this, uh, I felt that this was potentially another real, you know, viable alternative. But you know, it's an interesting idea. The final news story I wanted to mention today before we get into the heart of today's show um, is Simon Wilson again is is back on to the subject of open ID well this guy um, is nothing if not single-minded and recently he was speaking at the future of web applications conference over here in London which I, I was due to go to but unfortunately I was ill and I, I missed out on a load of really cool stuff which is just typical bitter and twisted <laughs> um but simon talked about open id um and what he's done is he's taken the podcast um that was produced from that uh that conference and he's combined it with his notes to produce like a screencast and it really is an absolutely excellent screencast so um if i know we mentioned open id before but if you haven't got around to looking at open id yet then go and check this out. It's a really good introduction to OpenID. Explains how it works. Explains how you can implement it on your own site. Talks about some of the potential problems of it. It's a very honest examination of OpenID. But it also is really good um, in this particular uh, talk. Because he actually encourages people to kind of innovate a little bit more with OpenID. Instead of just using it for login. Use it for all kinds of really cool stuff. So if you're a website owner, um, especially I think if you, you've got a relatively new startup, take a look at OpenID because I think it's got real benefits for your business. Mm. Okay, that about wraps up the new segment. Let's move on to Client Corner. Okay, um, this week I wanted to look at choosing the right agency for the job and sort of thinking about it a bit more. I guess what I mean is recognising that there are an awful lot of different types of creative, for want of a better word, and technical agencies. And I've, I've kind of split this up into, I've tried to think of as many different types of work or types of specialism there are in, in within those bounds. Um, and so I've got some, uh, some top level, uh, which would be consulting, creative, marketing, technical, and hosting. Uh, 
and really just wanted to have a look at, 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 at the different um, possibilities that there are within those those uh, main headings. Mm. Uh, there are there's a there are a great deal of different fields basically within creative and techni technical agencies. It's not unrealistic for some agencies to specialise in very specific areas within these um, uh, within the within these groups. Uh, although that's rare, just to find one particular group. I mean, you may find an agency that literally just does information architecture, say, uh, unlikely, but uh, it's possible. And it would suggest that if uh, logic suggests that if if um, an agency does specialise in something that specific, then they, they're going to be damn good at it. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily say that somebody that spreads spreads across isn't is, isn't necessarily better than them. But just have a look, have a look at um, the different things that you may come up come up come up um, uh, come up with, which are under the consulting banner. You've got things like business strategy, you know, general business strategy, which I suppose is possibly. Um, it's, that's maybe sort of spreading it a little bit too wide here, but some some agencies that would deal with general business strategy management that kind of thing may look at things like web strategy as well, which is the next thing I've got on the list. Uh, obviously, branding, information architecture, testing and testing programs, market research, statistical analysis, that kind of thing. Now. I guess what I'm comparing here is that my next group is is the creative side of things, which is things like web design, corporate identity, print design, uh, and the creative side of advertising, i.e., creating web ad adverts, print mm. adverts, TV. Now, it's people tend to think of web design; they just think of that little group. And uh, over the years, we've tried to kind of push out from that group. Obviously, we do technical work as well, um, and we do a quite a lot of consulting work. But the the next group that um, uh, that I'm going to cover is marketing, which is things like search engine optimization, email campaigns, pay-per-click, direct marketing. It goes on and on, and also the you know the the analysis and tracking that get, which is a, a very high, uh, you know, it's, it's a high specialism to uh, to be able to track all these things. We looked at that. Well, I mean, we we looked at trying to get into that in in quite a big way a couple of years ago, uh, and it, it's it's almost something that's uh, it. it, it you need a whole group of people within your company who are dedicated to just doing that for it to work. It's not something you can kind of dabble at. We found. Yeah. Um, so I, <clears throat> I suppose I suppose what I'm I'm saying here is is be wary of 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 going for that uh, agency that's covering all the bases because no doubt they are expert in one particular area. I mean, as as I said with Headscape, obviously web design is uh, something that we've been doing forever. Uh, but even though we do have some experience of doing online marketing campaigns, it's not something that um, I would say we were particularly keen on continuing to do. So just, I guess, I guess the message here is um, just, just be wary of that. Obviously, I guess it, I guess it also depends on how big the agency is. You know, if it's a huge mm. agency, then you know they could have an entire team dedicated to online marketing, for example. Mm. Yeah, search engine optimization is a really uh, important part, or it can be a really important part, particularly for e-commerce sites, um, uh, of, of the whole web design process. Uh, and I think that that's something that, you know, as a client, you should be asking, you know, what kind of boxes are you ticking? Now, of course, there's the the building sites so they are as visible to a, to, um, a search engine as possible. That's part of web design. But there's also the ongoing, literal optimizing um, your site for search engines to see what what people actually do for that. Because that, again, that's not something that we, we specialize in at Headscape. Um, it's, I, I guess what I'm trying to do here is just point out that, that there is an awful lot to making a successful website. Um, there's also, of course, things like hosting. Um, there are the major players, uh, some famous hosting uh, groups, but there's also a lot of web design companies offer their own hosting, hosting services, and usually what they're doing is just piggybacking on one of the major players. We do that to a certain extent, um, but just it, it's worth. I suppose <clears throat> I'm I'm not trying to say avoid sort of jack of all trades, but just check if you are taking on these various uh, services that they're offering. Make sure that they've got kind of long experience in each one of them, because no doubt some areas they'll be more, um, you know, they'll have more experience in than others. Really? I mean, it's so a difficult it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Because on on one hand, like. You know, it's really good to to be a specialist agency that kind of just deals with, say, you know, one aspect of web design. But from a client's perspective, 
you know, they're not going to want to deal with multiple different agencies for different parts of this. So there's kind of specialist and then there's ridiculously specialist. So, yeah, you know, you don't you don't want to have to deal with one creative agency that does, you know, the front end HTML, CSS and then another one that that does the you know underlying server side stuff and a, another company for hosting and another company for marketing i mean that it begins it often to get happens annoying. though yeah i know but it's quite a hard thing to imagine uh, to manage for a client is it not yeah uh, it, it can be but I, I, all i'm saying is weigh it up um be wary of um the unless like you say unless it's a sort of huge hundred person agency be wary of a, a relatively small agency that's offering a very wide uh, that has a very wide offering mm. I mean, particularly if it includes print for example I mean because um, that's that's another as as we've often said in the past it's a very different skill to uh, in creating good print design is creating good web design so it's all I'm saying is, is check it out I guess yeah yeah, I mean, I agree with you that when you start getting into different disciplines like web design or print design or TV or whatever, you know, they're all kind of different, very different areas, you know. So I'm not a great fan of, say, using a, a, an advertising agency to produce your website as well. But equally, I'm not, I'm not a great fan of kind of splitting out all the individual parts of a web design project to multiple agencies because I think potentially that can create problems. I tell you, one, one area that's quite an interesting one is, is the mobile web. That mm. I, I remember hearing a really fascinating talk by somebody that specializes in just the mobile web. And he said, he was talking to a web design audience, audience of general um, yeah, agencies. And he said, do you remember the early days of the web where you, you just set up and you were you know, building websites? And then you had all of these print agencies come along and go, oh, yeah, we can do websites too. Yes. You know, which was a crap time. And he's saying that... that, that um, mobile specialists are living through the same thing now that mm. you know web design agencies are going oh yeah we can do the mobile web too when in actual fact they can't um are certainly not to the standard that a specialist agency does so i guess to some degree it depends on how important an individual area is so you know if the mobile web is is a huge issue to you then you ought to go to a specialist in it um you know if you just want to kind of tip your hat to the mobile web and do a little bit in that area then you probably can get away with using your normal agency so you've kind of got to weigh it up like that as well yeah but uh, there's two sides to that though isn't there because you could say that well if your website's just a bit of a brochure you may as well get the print company to do it yeah but then i actually think well that's fair enough if the web isn't important to you mm. you know then then just get your existing print agency to do it you know it's about it's about return on investment and it's about prioritizing your business and that kind of thing. You know, if you're making 90% of your revenue through a catalog um, and the web is, a, is an afterthought and you're not, you don't, your audience isn't going to be heavy web users and won't spend, you know, money and energy looking for a, a web design agency to, to do it when you could use your existing print house. Mm. Yes. <laughs> you're not convinced by that, are you? There's a, there's a discussion in itself there, isn't there? I mean, it's it, it's it's just it's it's about researching what's best for you at yeah. the end of the day. Okay, I think we've kind of done that to death. Um, uh, next week, yeah, you will say next week. I thought of a next week. I've been asked by more than one person, and this is so it's not going to be client corner next week. It's going to be uh, sort of helping web designers sell web design. No, yes. we can't do that. We have kind of looked at it briefly in the past, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd go to it again. I've been asked specifically by a few people, so I thought I'll talk about selling web design services. But so, yeah, it's, you're going to give impossible. away all our secrets, are you? No, it's just going to be silence. Come or on. alternatively, you could lie. You could give them really bad advice. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's make up some stuff. That'd be great. I love it. Okay, let's move on to our Ask an Expert section. Bugworld.com Okay, so this week on the Ask an Expert section of the show, we have Patrick Haney talking about web design inspiration and what makes a cool website. And um, if you haven't come across Patrick before, he is a, an exceptionally talented designer um, that I've had the pleasure to meet a couple of times. Um, and he's a really nice guy and I really get on with him. He works at Harvard University and his blog is at notasausage.com. I have no idea why he chose that as a domain name. And it's very bizarre when he introduces himself as Patrick Haney, notasausage.com. 
Um, it just sounds strange. Anyway, um, but as well as his, his website and Not A Sausage, he also started a, a Flickr feed for himself a while back um, where he kind of, whenever he saw a cool website that he liked, he just shoved it on Flickr um, so that he had a kind of record of, of, of cool things that he'd seen around. But more and more people started to go, oh, I like this stuff that, that um, Patrick is finding. And, and now that, that Flickr feed has actually got a really kind of big following to it. And I'll, I'll actually put it in the show notes so that you can get at it. So I thought he's the perfect person to say, to ask about what makes good design because obviously he's got an eye for that kind of thing. So I'll get him on the show and we'll get him talking about what is good design. So... Here is Patrick. Something I'm often asked when it comes to my design inspiration set on Flickr is, what criteria do you use to judge if something gets added? Many people will probably be surprised to hear that there is no real criteria per se for me to feel that a website is worthy of being added to the list of this ever-growing set of screenshots. In fact, when it comes down to it, it's more about my personal preference or my mood at the time than anything else. However, at the same time, I find myself being drawn to the appeal of certain looks or certain design elements on a site. Most of the time, the underlying simplicity of a design is what attracts me the most and gets my immediate attention, even if that simplicity is dressed up with glitz and glamour. This whole design inspiration set started off as a personal archival of pieces of design I truly enjoyed and wanted to study more. Honestly, it was never meant as a public gallery of inspiration. We do, after all, have plenty of those sites already. Though, thinking about it, maybe I should start a new site of my own and call it CSS Awesomeness. Or maybe Style Sausage, created by Patrick Haney, who is not a sausage. Okay, let's just forget I said that. What you might notice about those sites that do make it into my inspiration set is that most of them are attractive, but focus on getting the user the content they want. I tend to steer away from sites that are flashy, yet don't present me with a clear set of material to peruse, especially when the navigation required for such content browsing is not well designed on its own. And speaking of Flash, you'll probably also notice that I rarely feature any Flash sites in the set. I'm not one to stand in the way of using Flash when it comes to web design. I'm just not a fan of using it as a primary method of feeding content to users on the web. When used in tandem with well-written markup, I find Flash to be a bonus and not a hindrance. Good design. Well, that's a loaded question, really. What is good design? Is it subtle gradients? Glossy buttons? That grunge look that pulls together an artsy website? Dare I say, Web 2.0? Some designers prefer a certain look and feel when it comes to the web. For me, it's usually about simplicity. Not that you haven't figured that one out yet. Is the navigation easy to locate? Does the content flow well on the page? Is there enough white space to prevent the layout from looking overcrowded? But when it comes right down to it, Good design is not so much about what we as designers prefer, it's about how the users see our design and how they use it. As much as we talk about catering to the user's needs, I think we can easily forget about them during the design process. Good design on the web, in my opinion, is about these things. Simplicity, ease of use, readability, content flow. Using those things as a base layer, and then adding things like style, color, and imagery to create an original look and feel that users can both be passionate about and dig into. Now there's a formula for good design. Thanks very much, Patrick. That was incredibly useful. And uh, it's always nice. I love having different people on the show because they all present in slightly different ways. It's fascinating. He's very laid back, isn't he? He is. He's He's that kind of, you know, kind of guy. Yeah. You know, you feel like he could fall over quite easily because <laughs> the effort of standing up is, you know, far too much. He's like an active guy, but very, yeah, anyway, I'm not explaining myself very well. And now he's going to hate me. So that's good. <laughs> well done, me. So what should we have on next week's Ask an Expert? I've actually run out of my backlog now of, of um, Ask an Expert sections. So please write in and uh, make your suggestions. Hopefully I can get something cooked up for next week's show. But if not... Um, the Ask an Expert section might mysteriously disappear. But I would very much appreciate your suggestions of who we should talk to and what we should talk to them about. You could do that by emailing me at paul at boagworld.com. Hi, Paul. I'm a junior doctor and currently run the website www.obstetricmedic.org.uk. I have learned HTML and CSS from scratch and have found your podcast really helpful in developing skills and for your recommendations and clear explanation of relatively difficult concepts. 
I would like to set up a restricted area on my website for those users who have registered. I can easily manage setting up a form for users to register, however I was wondering how you go about checking usernames and passwords and allowing access to the restricted area. I'd really value your help. Many thanks. So, as you will have guessed from that question from Ken, we are now in the agony uncle section of the show. And it, it's quite an interesting question, the whole idea of logon and registration and how you manage all that kind of stuff. Um, and there's two aspects um, that I want to address uh, to Ken's question. The first is the technology of, of logging into a website and dealing with that kind of logon process and having secure content and all that kind of stuff. And the second is the user experience of it. Okay, so let's start with the technology. The most common way of managing a logon to a website and managing secure se um, sections on a website um, is to do it using session variables like you would get in uh, PHP or ASP and you normally manage it through that kind of route. Um, but it's not the most secure approach. You know, the, there are more secure ways of doing it. But to be frank, in 99% of, of situations, you know, that's more than adequate. You know, that, that will manage the login process. Now, unfortunately, I'm not going to get into the detail of, of how to do that login in either ASP or, or PHP. Um, there are alternatives as well that you might want to consider. For example, a lot of sites use cookies for managing login. Um, but you can encounter problems with browser security and also they're probably even more uh, insecure than um, session variables. So just be a little bit careful over that. Probably um, the most secure method you could use is by using file permissions on the server itself. Um, you know, and actually setting permissions for individual files and folders. But to be honest, that's really over the top and also doesn't make for a very good user experience. Um, if you are particularly concerned about security and those kinds of aspects, depending what it is you're keeping within those sections, you could obviously put everything on a secure server and do the, the transaction, you know, of passing information backwards and forwards um, on a, you know, secure server instead of doing it kind of through plain text which is what normally happens um, but I, I, like I said I'm not going to get into the specifics of exactly how to achieve this but the basic principle is very simple whether you're using PHP, ASP, ColdFusion.net whatever else the basic principle is that um, on each page of your website there is a piece of code sorry each page of the website that is in a secure area there is a piece of code that it, um, checks for the, uh, the existence of either a session cookie or a normal cookie um, and if that that doesn't exist then it denies access to the page and forces the user back to a login page or a registration page or whatever else and it really is that simple there are lots of tools out there that will help you uh, manage that and Ken if you are you're actually using something like um, uh, Dreamweaver you'll actually find that, that functionality is kind of provided within Dreamweaver if you're not somebody that codes from hand if you are somebody that codes from hand um, then do a search on the web and you'll find loads of examples of how to technically go about doing it but that's that's the basic principle now there are there is something in um, ASP.NET that's a little bit unique uh, where it's got kind of built-in objects that handle this kind of process for you but I'm really not going to get into that because to be frank it's beyond my level of <laughs> knowledge so I don't want to show my ignorance okay so let's look at the kind of user experience aspects of this I know this wasn't directly in your question Ken but it's a kind of interesting area and I think it's definitely worth worth addressing um, because so often the whole process of um, site registration and login is very badly managed um, and there's a temptation where people focus too much on the technology and not enough about the user experience. Okay, so let's look at user registration first. So a user actually wants to get access to this secure part of your site that you're creating. How do they go about doing it? Well, traditionally, you have a login box and you also have a sign-up option. Now, I don't know how you, you're managing this on, your, on the particular site we're talking about here, but that's normally the way that it works. Now, one of the big problems that you often encounter is with the idea of, of finding a username. So you, you want someone to have a username <coughs> and a password in order to log in. Mm. But that can prove a problem. 
Now, there's some options available to you here. First of all, why is it a problem? Well, as your number of users um, increases, you, you're going to find that someone's going to say, hey, I want my username to be John Smith, and somebody's already um, registered John Smith, so then they have to try another one. And this can become a real problem as your site scales up. Now, it's not going to be a problem on a small site, but when you become something like Yahoo, if you've ever tried to sign up for a new user account at Yahoo, you'll find out very quickly that it's really hard to get the username you want. And you end up typing it, you know, one username after another, after another, after another, waiting to find the right one and each time you enter a username the page has to refresh it has to call back to the server see if that username's there and you know it goes on and on so it could be a very time-consuming process so look for some ways to shortcut this one is you might want to use ajax in order to make that call back to the server and see whether the username is taken or not but there are actually simpler solutions to this. And the simplest solution is actually to make your username your email address. Um, because you know that no one else is going to have your email address, so it's always going to be available. The other big advantage of using an email address as a username is that it is easier to remember. But I, I couldn't do this section without also mentioning OpenID, because obviously OpenID is a very good way of handling this as well, because all a user needs to do then is remember a URL. They don't even need to remember a password, or certainly not a password that's unique to your website. So um, investigate these different things and look for ways of making that uh, registration process easier. Don't ask for information that you don't really need as part of the registration process because you're only going to put people off mm -hmm. you know don't ask them the name of their dog <laughs> you really don't need to know that but it's amazing how many marketers like to ask that kind of information that's really important um well yeah of course everybody needs to know <clears throat> the name of your dog ah <sighs> bizarre um you know so I, another one that often gets asked is your age well, unless the material is of an adult nature, why do you really need to know how old I am other than for demographic information, yeah. which is just going to put me off of bothering with your website. Also look at how you're going to handle errors in that sign-up process. Again, Ajax might come to the rescue here or at least a little bit of uh, client-side programming um, in order to make that a slightly more pleasurable experience. Okay, so that's the registration aspect, but there's also the aspect of actually logging in think carefully about how you're gonna um, provide people with lost passwords you know are they gonna have to reset the password or can they get it emailed through to them um, that kind of thing ideally you don't want to have to be you know um, reset the password at least not with a randomly generated password because you're never going to remember that you need to make it easier for either people to enter their own new password or you just email them the password. Email's safe, the safest way of doing it. Especially yeah, it if, really. if you use a login as your email because that also acts as a secure, uh, you know, it's another level of security that the person that's trying to uh, register for your site is a real person or somebody, at least somebody with a real email address. So, yeah, and also the, the email address they originally registered with. Of course, the downside of that is if someone changes their email address or forgets what email address they, they registered with. Well, it's also um, it's a hell of a lot easier to be logging in with just Marcus than marcus.lillington at headscape.co.uk. But, you know, like you say, it's unique. And, and I find it nothing more frustrating. I, I recently tried to sign in for something. Uh, where I couldn't get the username I wanted, and then you end up have, you're thinking about three or four in, in advance, and the one that it finally gives you is the one actually not the one you really wanted. It's, it was the next one that you were going to try. Yeah, but yes. And also another really aspect, uh, annoying aspect of that is when you come to log in. Um, often cases it can be a long time since you last <coughs> logged into the site, yep. and so you. You can't remember either the username or the password, yes, or you can. So you can guess at one. Well, you can guess at both of them, but you're not sure which of the... And then it comes back with an error that says, either your username or password was incorrect. Yeah. Well, can you tell me which one was wrong? <laughs> you know, was it... Because you should be able to look up and say, well, that username doesn't exist in our database. Mm. So it should at least tell you that. Because otherwise, you're not sure which of the two you've guessed wrong. So you end up having to do hundreds of combinations of username <laughs> and passwords trying to guess the right one. Yes. 
So think carefully about that. Think how you're going to handle the fact that somebody has um, no longer got the email address that they previously had as well. Um, so uh, one more thing. Another yeah. thing that annoys me. Fine, if it's my bank account, if I have to have a ten-figure password with you know weird symbols in it and that kind of thing. But if it's just a login for you know, I'm just, oh, yeah. I don't want to have to put numbers in it, etc. I mean, I quite I quite like it when they tell you how strong your password yeah. is. Have you ever yeah, seen yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, fine. That's but that's cool. my choice. I don't like being forced exactly. to put numbers in it or uh, you know a, a mixture of numbers and letters. Drives me up. Or, yeah, yeah. So the the. <laughs> The kind of last comment I'd make about this really before we wrap it up is ask yourself as well, does this content really need to be secure? We've had clients that have had secure areas and I've thought, you know, why are you hiding that behind behind a login? Mm. You know, because if you do make something secure, not only are you making it a barrier for users accessing it, but also search engines can access it. Um, and sometimes I've seen clients put stuff in a secure area simply because they want people to sign up. Um, and they want to get kind of information out of them. And that's really is a very counterproductive. I mean, the example that springs to mind is I remember um, somebody had to log in, register and log in in order to get a demo mm. or to view a demo of a product. Well, why would you want to make it hard for somebody to see your product? You know, it really makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was their model, wasn't it? I mean, basically, the, the marketers... Uh, were measured on how many leads they got for the sales team. So it was in, in their personal interest as marketers within the company to to get as many leads as I get as many contact details as possible. So for for, for them as a as a department, it was valuable for them to do that. But you know they couldn't see that for the company it was actually possibly damaging. Or so because the the logic there being that um, if you make somebody log in you know for a start they're going to put mickey mouse at disney.com as their email address mm. and also they might get in view the product and go now this is crap but the marketing group will then pass on their contact details to a salesperson that will will put the energy and time into following them that call up mm. you know that person up even though they're not interested if they put that product demo actually in the public area of the site then if some that if somebody had bothered then to view the demo and contact the the um, the the company, then that is such a better quality lead because they've actually you know seen the product, gone yes I like this and made the effort to contact. The quality of lead is much better, and much more important than the quantity of leads you're generating. Yep. Um, so yeah does do you really need to keep the content in the secure area and if you are going to have content in the secure area make sure you clearly explain to the user what they're going to get if they bother to go through the exercise of signing up so often websites say sign up now and you go well why mm. why you know why am i interested what is on the site so there you go that's um the agony uncle section for today i hope that was useful not only to um ken that sent in the question but to everybody um, and yeah, there you go. Let's move on <clears throat> finally to the review section of moving to a Mac. So as I've already said, I've moved to a Mac. Now I haven't moved exclusively to Mac. Don't get overexcited. But I did while in America buy myself a MacBook. They're just so ridiculously cheap there. Well, if you live in the UK and you've got the great mm. exchange rate that we have at the moment. Um, so, I yes, I did buy a MacBook. Um, and I have to say that it's been a really interesting experience migrating across from uh, Windows to a Mac. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of that experience. Now, bear in mind that I'm only a week into the process. So some of the things that I potentially highlight as problems that I've had could simply be my ignorance. Um, stupidity. That, stupidity, yeah. And that there may other words like that. Yes. I know you like using <laughs> words like that in association with me. Um, so there may well be good experience, uh, good solutions to all of these things out there. But what I'm talking about here is the experience of migrating. Because, um, you know, you may be out there, you may be a Windows user, but be tempted to move across to the Mac. And I, I want to give you a taste of what that's like and how I got on with it. Okay. So it's not about whether Macs are better or PCs are better. I'm not going to get into that whole whole argument. What I want to <laughs> focus on is 
it's my experience and, and what I've liked and what I've disliked and where things have gone well. So let's start off with the positive points in order to keep all the Mac fanboys happy. I love my MacBook. It's, um, I love in particular the hardware. It's small, it's light, it's kind of sexy, it looks really cool. I was, um, I was gullible. It's a cute puppy. It is, it is a cute puppy that you want to stroke and love and be <laughs> loving to. Um, and I, I am superficial enough to pay the extra money in order to get a black one. How sad's that? Um, so there we go. So very nice little piece of kit. It's the details that I like. It's the attention to details. Silly things, right? I was sitting in South by Southwest sit, sitting next to a regular Mac user. And um, I disconnected my power cable that I plugged into the wall. It's a very funny sight at South by Southwest because you see all these geeks sitting on the floor near power sockets so they can charge their laptops. So I just had done exactly that. And I unplugged my, um, my uh, power supply, which is very cool anyway because it's connected by a, um, a magnetic strip so that if someone walks into your power cable, it doesn't rip your laptop and dump it on the floor. And I was wrapping the cable around the, the big plug you know that that sits in the power supply and he said oh no no no, you don't need to do that and he took it off of me and he flipped up these two little um things on the 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 power supply that i hadn't seen and you can wrap the cable around that it's got a special little wrappy thing and i know it's a stupid thing but that kind of attention to detail is what attracts me so much to to the macbook Things like it's got um, one of those DVD drives where you, you push in the CD into, into a slot rather than having this whole tray that slides out. It, and, you know, it's well thought through the positioning of the USB ports and, and stuff like that, which I know is a bugbear with your Sony laptop, is it not? Uh, it is. Well, I've got one round the back, uh, which is fine. And then I've got two on the right-hand side, right at the front. Of right. So where your mouse is, basically. So, and yeah. this is the biggest laptop in the world. So you would have thought they could put them all at the back. Yeah. Where you want them. I mean, anyway. what, on the, the MacBook, they put them um, in the middle on the left-hand side, which I think <coughs> is a really good position. Maybe a bit annoying if you're left-handed. I don't know. Um, but I don't actually like having USB ports at the back because you're trying to plug things in and out all the time. So it's a really well-thought-through piece of hardware. Also, I have to say that the interface is very intuitive to use. Um, it again, it's it's the attention to detail, little things like, you know, it, Vista is particularly absurd um, at the moment. Where when you go to shut down the PC, it gives you like sixteen different ways. You know, you can hibernate it, you can um, you can suspend it, you can put it to sleep, you can shut it down, you can restart it, and all that crap. You don't have anywhere near that kind of complexity with a Mac. Everything is in a hugely logical place um, and it's very intuitive and you, you kind of pick up the interface extremely quickly. Um, it, it's also ridiculously easy to install programs. You drag them dr and drop them into the applications folder. You know, imagine doing that with Windows that you just, you know, drag an installation file into a start menu. How cool would that be? Mm. It just and then of course if you want to uninstall it, you drag it into the recycle bin. So mm. clean, so nice. So a very nice thought through interface. I think the key to it, and actually this is a lesson for us as web designers. I think you know there's a lot that we can use for, from um, software de uh, developers and how they work and stuff like that. And this is one of them that I think you can learn from from the Mac OS. Is being brave enough to take things away that there is some functionality that exists within Windows that you can't do in a Mac. And your initial reaction is, oh, no, that's been, you know, where, how do I do this? And then you realize you can't do it. And then you realize actually you don't care you can't do it and that it's not that big a deal. <laughs> um, and it's just that having that bravery to take things away in order to clean them up is, 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 is very effective and works really well. It's it's true actually. I mean, I, I agree. With that. I think the the design of the interface is fantastic <coughs> on the Mac. Mm. Um, Windows, you've got five different ways to start a program and all that kind of thing, and it just sort of seems pointless. It's it, you know, so they're trying to cover every base on Windows, and it gets so overcomplicated because of it. Yeah. Where you just you just literally want to sort of click a button, and I'm now in my, this new place, rather than having to sort of 
you know, choose which way you're going to open a program or, or whatever. Yeah. So from that point of view, it is certainly a, a, more, a more well thought out and usable interface, it seems to me. It's also, they, they, they don't constantly <laughs> notify you about stuff. Let me give yeah. you an example. Um, pl- uh, this, um, I'm sitting in front of a mic right now. When I plug that mic into Windows for the first time, it goes, I've just discovered a new device. I'm loading the drivers for the new device. I cannot find the drivers for the new device. Would you like me to look on the internet? Which can- never works. Which never <laughs> works. I cannot find the drivers on the internet. Please insert a CD-ROM. And, and then it says, installing the drivers. The drivers are almost installed. They're nearly there. We're there now. The device is working. It's called a Samsung, whatever. And there's like hundreds of notifications. You plug it into the Mac, and it either works or it doesn't. Simple as that. You know, it just works. Um, and, you know, it, it was almost a shock the first time that I did it. It's like, so is it going to start doing it? When's it going to start? And then I realized <laughs> it done it already. It was working, yeah. Yeah, it was just working. Um, and, and that is very refreshing. So um, I can see, I guess, out of this is I can see why Mac users are extremely smug and how they consider um, the Mac operating system to be vastly superior. And I I certainly think it's vastly superior to XP. But I'm not so sure that it's superior to Vista. Yeah, all of the points I've I've covered still stand. Um, But Vista has got some nice stuff. It certainly copied the OS um, uh, OS 10 in a lot of ways. Um, things like the search facility um, that Vista is in. Oh, your phone is going. Bad person, aren't I? You are a bad person. Hang on, turn off your phone. Hang on. Are you going to take the call now? I'll be very cross if you take the call. Hello. Oh no. They hung up. Oh no. <laughs> Shit, that means another phone's probably going to ring. Oh, panic. Get rid of the phones. I'm going to. I'm going to carry on talking. Are we going to edit this Bye. out? Let's just leave it in. Let's just go with the flow, man. I'm beyond editing. Jeremy Keith always criticizes me for editing, and I just don't care. Okay, so, um, yeah, I can understand but how Mac users feel that, you know, OS ten is, is, you know, hugely superior. But... I'm not sure it always is with Vista. Oh, you're back, are you? Anyway, you're cheek. You're the one that always has the phone ringing. That is true, actually. I I forget once. Yeah. (sighs) It's just that I remembered this time, so I'm feeling smug. (laughs) And you're a Mac user. Yeah. So Vista, in a lot of ways, has ripped off um, OS X, and I'm quite happy to admit that. But in other ways, they've actually surpassed OS X. For example... Vista at the moment, as it stands right now, Vista has got a much better backup facility. Now, I know the next version of the, um, the Mac operating system is going to have this, you know, time warp or whatever it's called. I can't remember what it's called, but they're going to have a cool backup facility as well. But right now, I think Vista's in a better place. Um, also, I think actually probably the Windows Start um menu with the with the equivalent of spotlight which is the search facility on os 10 is actually implemented slightly better you know for a start you only have to sit hit a single key instead of two keys to bring it up just minor stuff like that so i think there's still a lot to be said for vista and i'm not kind of i'm not completely dismissing windows and i have to say i think to a large extent it's down to personal preference and what it is that you do Macs are great for multimedia. They really do things like this podcast and, and um, you know, watching videos and listening to music, all that kind of stuff. They just kick Windows' ass when it comes to that majorly. Also, I think if you're a freelancer or, or somebody that kind of, you know, works by yourself or in a small team, then again, I think generally speaking, a Mac is probably better suited to you and has a lot of benefits. But I have to say that Macs do not play well in corporate environments. And I have had some serious issues um, and to some extent have just failed to get Mac to, to get the Mac working efficiently with things like Exchange Server. It, its interaction with Exchange Server just sucks. Its interaction with um, 
things like my mobile uh my windows mobile device that i have that kind of syncs all of my calendar and all that kind of stuff sucks yes mac uh, mail is great ical is great address book is great they look they work really well they look really good they're very intuitive to use but they do not support exchange well Ma uh, mail will support imap but that doesn't integrate iCal, which is the calendar application or the address book, very well. So the problem is basically you either have to have all Macs or you're stuffed if you're in a big. If you're in a big, yeah, corporation, well, you're not stuffed. I mean, I'm. I've worked around this problem. I mean, um, uh, OS 10, you can download um, Office 2004, which includes Entourage, which is their equivalent of, of um, Outlook. But to be honest, it's rubbish. It's absolutely <laughs> crap. You know, it's like Microsoft have gone, oh, okay, I suppose we ought to do something for the Mac operating system and kind of haven't really put any effort into it. It's kind of got some of the functionality of Windows Office, but not all of it, um, but is nowhere near as sexy or easy to use as the native Mac operating system applications like Mail and iCal and stuff like that. And I really am um, quite heavily missing Office 2007. Now, I have kind of worked around it now, and, and I've got kind of compromises. And so I get mail to connect to IMAP, and I can publish my calendar, which, you know, uh, Windows users can still access and things like that. But it's just not great. I have got my, my, um, my mobile device to sync, but it doesn't sync quite as well. So it's like, it's okay, but it's not great. Also, Office is flipping expensive on the Mac. Mm -hmm. Well, it's expensive on the PC. I was going to say, it's expensive everywhere. But yeah. yeah. But it, that, that it, it's kind of come as a real shock. And that brings me on to something else, which is that the migration across to a Mac is actually quite an expensive process. Made worse by the fact that, that um, Apple, in their wisdom, love their proprietary stuff. So, for example, I can't just plug my external monitor into... Um, into my mac no no that would be far too simple i have to have a proprietary cable which is a pain it's, it's stupid and annoying you know i can understand why they've done it and in some ways it works well it means that you can have um you know you can get a proprietary cable that plugs into a, a desktop monitor but you can get another one that plugs into your tv also, it's a much smaller connection, so it means that the whole design can be more slimline and that kind of stuff. All good reasons, but it's still a pain and can get expensive buying all these odds and sods. Also, I feel that people that have exaggerated the quickness and the painful, uh, painlessness of making the transition across to a Mac. Um, it, it, you can do it, but it takes time and it, it can be a painful process. Some applications don't run as well on a Mac as they do on a PC or, or aren't supported at all, and you have to find the kind of equivalent versions of that. Um, and things like parallels. People go on, oh, yes, but you can run Windows in parallel on your Mac operating system. Yes, you can, but... It can run like a dog if you don't have enough memory. And it is cool being able to switch between your Mac and Windows, and, and, and that's very nice to show off to people. But it doesn't actually run as well as perhaps you know people say it does. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it might just be that I need to upgrade the memory. But again, that's right. more money, and so it gets more expensive and stuff like that. After saying that, so I said quite a lot of negative stuff. I have to say, for me personally... It's worth getting a Mac just for Keynote and GarageBand alone. GarageBand is the, the music editing software that's also great for podcasts. And I'm really quite excited about some of the potential of that. Um, but Keynote is, is superb as well. It's kind of their equivalent of, of PowerPoint. And is vastly, and I mean vastly, superior in every aspect. So if you're somebody that gives a lot of presentations, then Keynote really rocks and is definitely worth considering. So overall, I'm I'm glad that I've made the switch, um, but it, a Mac is a better solution if you work alone or work with other Mac users. It's not so great for a large corporate environment, and um, you might just want to try Vista before you look at uh, at the Mac. But that's just my personal opinion, and I am still early into the process, and everything might change before too long. But hopefully, that review is of interest if you are considering <laughs> the swap. I'm sure you're going to disagree with me, and that's your prerogative. 
So that about wraps it up for this show. Marcus, do you have a joke for us? Uh, two, animal, t- two animals, two cannibals are eating a clown. One says to the other, does this taste funny to you? Uh, do you know what? I almost didn't get that. <laughs> so either that was a really bad joke or I'm still jet lagged. I'm not quite sure which. <laughs> I do, every time I, it's wake up time in the morning, isn't it? I'm fine. I'm going to bed at night, but it, I worked out the sort of the time I want to wake up in the morning is sort of like really the middle of the night in in Texas. So I'm waking up really bleary every morning. That's um, this is not a joke, by the way. No, <laughs> <laughs> I went to buy some camouflage trousers the other day, but I couldn't find any. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting worse, aren't they? I'm not going to do any more. Okay, well, maybe one more. Go on. My... <laughs> this is so bad. It's just awful. Um, I'm getting to the end. Of the the poor the poor ones on the list of short Tommy Cooper style. Here we go. Last one. Honest. I won't make you suffer anymore. My friend drowned in a bowl of muesli. He was pulled in by a strong current. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Yes. <clears throat> Lovely. Thank you very much. Marcus, I appreciate your contribution to the show. So, yeah, don't forget that you can post comments on the show notes. And I'm sure that you Mac lovers out there will, will have a lot to comment on this time round. Um, you can do so by going to www.boagworld.com forward slash podcast. And then you can select episode 71. And down at the bottom of the show notes, there is the option to post comments. I would love to hear your comments. It's always great to get feedback. Um, and don't forget send me your suggestions for the ask an expert section who should we be talking to and what should we talk to them about send those to paul at boagworld.com thank you very much for listening and um, i hope we will speak to you again next week goodbye